Welcome back to our weekly podcast. I'm your host, Margaret Pendo, and I have the honor of introducing you to Professor Emeritus Armando Zanechia. Professor Zanechia has spent time all over the world attending eight grammar schools and four high schools in Rome, living in Okinawa, Japan, Oregon, Virginia, Massachusetts, Canada, California, as well as being a summer fellow at the Cooperative Institute of Moscow or working throughout Central America, the United States, Europe, and Asia. In addition to that, he and his wife, Charlotte Zanechia, can be found traversing continents in an overland vehicle. I'm super excited to have Professor Zanechia on the podcast today and excited to share some of his stories with you all. Welcome, Professor. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Margaret, for organizing this. Of course, of course. So um, let's just get into it, why don't we? So for starters, I would love to ask you a very general question, but hopefully it can take us somewhere somewhere else. Um, Just about what your favorite thing has been about teaching at Franklin. Yeah, well, it's a good question. As you alluded to in uh, uh, your introduction, uh, it was, I'm sort of a, a third culture kid. You know, I traveled all over the world and uh, as a product of uh, an army family. Uh, and my father, just uh, as part of being a career army officer, took us to all the places you included in your uh, introduction, as well as uh, my continuation of that tradition by uh, working and living in uh, Oregon and uh, Massachusetts, Virginia, and so forth. So, uh, yeah, the bottom line is that when I uh, came to Franklin, or when I looked at Franklin, I said, wow, that, that seems to really resonate with me in terms of uh, the international uh, composition of students uh, from well over 60 countries around the world. And, uh, and I just felt immediately at home with the idea of uh, exploring employment at Franklin. And, uh, and I was not disappointed when I arrived, uh, you know, having students literally uh, from all over the world and being able to relate to them in ways that uh, I had not been able to do in the past, uh, mainly because, uh, yeah, there, there just wasn't that uh, element of internationalism and cosmopolitanism. And, uh, you know, and so, uh, yeah, I, I felt right at home from the very beginning. And then academic travel, which we can talk about a little bit more later, but uh, certainly you really get to know your students, as you can appreciate. Uh, You know, when I uh, have taken students to uh, Southern Africa, for the most part, we're, you know, living together 24-7 in uh, fairly remote uh, areas, be it Botswana or Namibia or elsewhere. And so during those periods of time, you know, extended interaction, uh, you get to know students in ways that uh, you never would get to know students in a more conventional sense that show up for class and then uh, see you at the end of the semester kind of thing, you know. Mm -hmm. So I I think that's certainly been one of the highlights of, of teaching at Franklin. And, uh, and not only that, but following the students in terms of their careers, I look forward to seeing where uh, you head out, uh, you know, now that you're a graduate of Franklin. Uh, but uh, I've been at Franklin now 23 years. And so many of my first students are well over 40 years old. They have, um, you know, started families, uh, life, you know, have life partners. Uh, they uh, are moving on with their careers. Uh, most of them are successful in what they have chosen to do. 
And uh, whether it's in design or the law field or some are PhD professors now and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's just been a, a constantly and positively reinforcement, uh, uh, reinforcing association with uh, students. And, uh, and I, I continue uh, to look forward to, even in my uh, emeritus status, uh, that essentially uh, to, to continue to teach one course uh, a semester for as long as I'm capable and as long as Franklin wants me. But uh, I, I certainly look forward to that element of teaching the one course a semester and maintaining that connection uh, with the students of Franklin. Yeah, and you actually mentioned briefly about your Southern African travels, and I was going to bring that up because I feel like that is the staple of your, you know, uh, what is it? Word on the streets these days. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was wondering, you know, in your first travel, your first ever travel that you had planned, what was it like? You know, how did you prioritize where you wanted to take students? How did you build your curriculum around going somewhere, you know, very far away? Um, I just yeah. kind of wanted to learn more about that process. Yeah, well, originally, uh, I was uh, hired at Franklin as a professor uh, of international management, and I was teaching finance and investment analysis uh, and strategic management. Uh, those were my, uh, my so-called bread-and-butter courses. Uh, and then I was asked to be the academic dean. Uh, so in those first two years at Franklin, I, uh, I led academic travel to New York, Washington, uh, and Boston, uh, because I had spent 16 years of my life in Massachusetts, where we had raised four, four sons. Uh, and uh, so I, I figured I would take students to the States uh, that, uh, you know, in, to areas that were quite familiar to me. I, I, you know, where I lived in Western Massachusetts, it was equidistant from Boston and New York City, so I got to know those two cities quite well. And then Washington, of course, uh, I had uh, done some grant work uh, with some of the um, foundations in the Washington, D.C. area. So I, I got to know Washington pretty well. And, and yeah, it's the nation's capital, so there's always something to see and do and connect with Congress people uh, that I had come to know over the years and so forth. So I did that for years and, um, and, and continued to do it uh, on an occasional basis when I was academic dean. Uh, but then uh, when I... Um, essentially um, stepped down from the academic dean's position to return to the full-time faculty after uh, nine or ten years in, uh, doing that job, uh, who's, but who's counting. Uh, effectively, uh, I uh, was uh, approached by some students to follow in the footsteps, so to speak, of a, a former professor who's now retired uh, on a flute tee who uh, was teaching environmental studies and also leading trips to uh, Southern Africa. In fact, when I was the academic dean, she uh, approached me and she said, what would you think about uh, my leading trips to Southern Africa? Uh, I lived in, uh, in you know, Southern Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, and so forth. And so she was clearly capable. And when she retired, uh, some students had approached me and said, uh, Professor uh, Anaflutti's theme essentially was sustainable development, and we know that that's something that you have a career interest in. And uh, would you consider uh, leading academic travels to Southern Africa? And I said, sure. I jumped at the opportunity um, and uh, essentially kept one foot in, one foot out. Uh, being in the full-time faculty, I said, well, I'll continue to lead a uh, academic travels to New York and Washington, 
uh, and one semester a year, I'll lead a trip to uh, Southern Africa. Well, the Southern Africa turned into one trip an academic year, then two trips an academic year, and then three trips, including the summer, uh, to Southern Africa. And uh, as they say, Africa tends to get under your skin, and uh, or Southern Africa, and I mean that in a good way. Uh, here in Ticino, they call it Malafrica, you know, it's the African sickness, but again, it's a, uh, a good connotation in the sense that, uh, you know, once you get hooked, you just want to go back. And uh, so that's kind of how it started. And um, yeah, I took students to um, destinations, uh, originally in Malawi, uh, but then increasingly uh, the, the Southern African cone, so to speak, from uh, Botswana, South Africa, all you know, going east to, to Mozambique, uh, essentially, and everything in between. And uh, I loved it. Uh, I loved traveling. I, I loved the landscapes, uh, the culture, the music, the, the warm heart of Africa that's often associated with Malawi, the people, uh, just a, a different kind of uh, approach to living. Uh, under conditions for the most part of deprivation. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I, I began to feel increasingly one with uh, um, all of the above, you know, in terms of what I just outlined. And uh, so uh, unfortunately COVID uh, pulled the plug on the Africa destinations. Uh, and uh, so I uh, increasingly um, because I love academic travel, I, uh, I started academic travels right here in our backyard in Switzerland, taking students to Zermatt and Grindelwald and, and uh, Alpine ecosystem analysis kind of thing, looking at the, the possibility for sustainable development right here in, in uh, uh, Switzerland, be it uh, food production, be it uh, biogas generation, be it renewable energy, and all the above. So. Um, I'm doing that right now. I've led, uh, I believe, two successful trips this past year. Uh, and um, I, I look forward to a trip in the fall uh, with the anticipation of being able to return to Southern Africa, uh, perhaps in the coming year. Yeah, fingers crossed. And I was, I was wondering if you could tell us more about your work and involvement with the Freedom Garden gardens in Malawi because I feel like that was kind of I mean it's something that we all learn about in a lot of classes you take and so yeah. you're actually able to be involved in that project as well am I remembering that correctly yeah yeah well again I, I come back to uh, with all due respect to Professor Fluti she had uh, mentioned the project to me and I said, well, I really want to visit uh, this project. And essentially it was a, a family run operation of a sustainable farm uh, where uh, there, there was some element of um, uh, success with respect to uh, providing a, uh, a polycultural as opposed to monocultural um, production of uh, grown vegetables and I said well you know in, in countries like Malawi and elsewhere that uh, are attempting to achieve food security first and foremost uh, when people in Malawi typically earn a dollar a day uh, that's not a whole lot and uh, and I have been involved in sustainable agriculture I actually wrote my doctoral dissertation on the politics of sustainable agriculture and uh, I have been involved in various other uh, sustainable agriculture projects in Massachusetts uh, we started the, the first community supported agriculture project in, uh, in the country, uh, right in uh, South Agramont, Massachusetts. 
and uh, and other sustainable agriculture projects in Nepal, uh, which is another country I visited, uh, and uh, I worked with the Institute for Sustainable Agriculture of Nepal, as well as some projects in Nicaragua in Central America. So I had this background of sustainable agriculture, a passion for looking at the politics of sustainable agriculture. So when I had heard about this project in Malawi, I said, I've got to go down there, I've got to visit it. And, uh, and certainly uh, students uh, were a big part of the experience in terms of sharing with them how a, a family, essentially, and an extended family of a women's cooperative group and local labor uh, have uh, developed uh, over 60 varieties of fruits and vegetables. Uh, they've achieved food security. They've been able to um, develop a surplus uh, with respect to being able to buy um, and, and build uh, brick housing as opposed to thatched roof mud housing, which is how the project started. Uh, and with that surplus, they were able to buy photovoltaic panels, uh, electricity, satellite communications, and so forth. So uh, there, it's a classic example of the potential of local community development uh, that uh, isn't on a grand scale, but certainly uh, achieving goals of food security and being connected to the rest of the world in terms of the educational potential of, of having internet uh, access and, and so forth. Uh, it, it's just a marvelous demonstration project of what can be done with very little using local inputs, local resources, and, and growing food uh, and generating a surplus in the project. And, and now they've been able to uh, purchase a, a vehicle a truck, a pickup truck, and they can take their uh, surplus to local markets. And there's a nearby refugee camp where uh, there's a ready market uh, for some of their sugar cane and their vegetables and, uh, and so forth. Uh, not to say that they don't have sources of protein. They raise uh, chickens and, 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 uh, uh, and a small plot of tobacco. Uh, for cash uh, considerations, because one of the primary exports of Malawi is tobacco, if not the primary export of Malawi. So uh, anyway, uh, it, um, it with each successive trip, uh, I uh, I became more and more convinced that it was a viable option. And my son, my youngest son, Milo, who's a professional photographer and filmmaker, uh, spent. Uh, close to three months at Freedom Gardens, um, filming and, uh, and, and made a, a very nice short film uh, with a little help from his brothers who provided the soundtrack as well as his uh, wife, Melody, who sang part of the soundtrack. And so it became kind of a family project at, at some level uh, to see it continue to grow. And I'm sorry if I'm going on too long here, but uh, just uh, as another piece, um, the, the founders, Glivens and Christine Chincunta, um, they had they have children, and uh, I got to know Daniel because he works full time at Freedom Gardens, uh, probably better uh, than the other siblings. And uh, but bottom line is that I, I asked Daniel. His father had since passed away; his mother is still alive. And uh, I said, Dan, this was years ago, uh, back in 2008, I think, uh, just a few years ago. I uh, asked Daniel, "What's your vision, or what was your father's vision uh, for Freedom Gardens?" And he said, uh, without hesitation, uh, to uh, make Freedom Gardens a, uh, an educational center, 
not only for foreign students, but also for local, the local community to teach other uh, growers, farmers in the area, in the immediate area, how to grow sustainably, how to not be dependent on external inputs like fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides that are uh, certainly not consistent with sustainable principles. And, uh, and essentially, he said, we, we would hope to build a school. And so I, uh, uh, after talking to some friends and uh, uh, yeah, we decided to go ahead with that vision, and uh, we built a, with a little help from Franklin at the time, uh, Franklin College, uh, but uh, certainly now Franklin University, uh, through the Greenleaves Fund, and um, private sources of uh, support, and also the Chincunta family. Uh, they were, uh, I had hoped that they would be an equal partner in this enterprise, and so they, they supplied the, um, the bricks that they had made, uh, they supplied the land, uh, and uh, with a small grant uh, that they received from a, a local NGO, uh, they were able to get uh, some funds for engineering assistance, architectural design, and so forth. But the bottom line is that it was a great partnership, and uh, we built the school. And, uh, and it's a fine little structure. Instead of uh, sitting outside in plastic chairs when it's raining under umbrellas, uh, now our, the students from Franklin can sit in a, a schoolhouse with a blackboard and with uh, photovoltaics and a 12-volt lighting system. And uh, we can have tea. And uh, it's certainly an educational facility. And Students from Franklin, students from Virginia Tech, um, and other American universities, as well as from the University of Malawi, uh, and, and uh, local farmers and local uh, growers who are interested in what's going on at Freedom Gardens. Uh, the bottom line is that they are, uh, it, it's a wonderful project, and I'm proud to be associated with it. Yeah, no, it's really amazing. And I like that you were able to really build, help build a community from Franklin there as well. Like it's just a very special, special thing. And yeah, there, there, there's a little plaque on the, on the, on the building and it, it's just wonderful. And it says with the, built with the assistance of the Chincunta family, the Zanakia family and Franklin University, Switzerland, you know, and that's just right there front and center, you know. Yeah. It's pretty symbolic of, maybe the reach you could say that Franklin really has, you know, you wouldn't expect to have an impact in a small town in Malawi, but hey, you know, it's amazing. But you mentioned you, you know, I mean, you do, you are, um, do a lot of research in community-based economic development, institutional strategic planning, along with the issues of labor and capital mobility in global markets. And, and you're very published in this field, which congratulations. I mean, I, you know, I got to say it. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I was wondering initially what led you to being interested in having this passion um, on these things, but also if you're able to incorporate your own creativity and your own passions to publish things specifically in this field. Yeah. Well, I, I think actually uh, it goes back to some of the early influences in my own educational development, uh, I had taken, uh, I was an economics major uh, at the uh, international economics uh, major uh, at the master's level. And uh, I was particularly interested in international trade and uh, the process of globalization and the role of multinational corporations and their influence on 
U.S. domestic and U.S. foreign policy. And, uh, and so I guess one could say I was a um, institutionalist uh, in the tradition of Thorsten Veblen and others that, um, you know, analyze these macro big picture ideas uh, in terms of these interrelationships that existed in terms of economic development and the types of economic development in terms of large-scale uh, agriculture, large-scale industrial development, uh, large-scale uh, aid uh, through aid agencies uh, to develop uh, huge hydroelectric projects, for example, through the World Bank. And, and, and so looking at the world of the United States, looking at the role of other uh, multilateral lending agencies and so forth, I began to piece together my understanding of how things worked on a global level, uh, which uh, you know, led to an appreciation for uh, the, the, the dynamics and mechanics of globalization. Uh, but at the same time, I also began to appreciate that these, uh, the, the impact of globalization on the environment uh, and Literally, I was concerned about uh, climate change and the warming of the planet and uh, the warming of the oceans and so forth uh, well over 40, if not 50 years ago when, when these uh, red flags started. You know, if uh, large-scale monoculture with the attendant use of petrochemical inputs uh, and large-scale energy delivery system, be it fossil fuel-based or be it uh, huge hydroelectric project-based, uh, I began to appreciate the impact on the climate uh, of these technologies because we had always been looking at just economic growth and all the, the big projects in one form or another are good for GDP growth. And it was always growth, growth, growth for growth's sake without any kind of discussion or real focused analysis of the impact uh, of this economic growth on, on pure and simply the planet, and, uh, and the lack of sustainable development uh, because of climate change, global warming, uh, deterioration of water sources, soil degradation, I mean, deforestation, uh, the, the list just goes on, right? So uh, I, I began to look at, in fact, when I was your age, more or less, I, I read a, a, a book by a British uh, economist, uh, E.F. Schumacher, and his, the name of that, it's a classic in the field that was called Small is Beautiful. And it looked at what can be done at the local level or intermediate scale level uh, that uh, could, uh, be at, uh, could achieve some of the goals like food security that some of these huge multinational approaches to industrial development were not achieving. Uh, who, you know, it's the classic question of who wins, who loses, who gains, who loses, right? Who were the beneficiaries of this large-scale industrial globalization? And, uh, and who, were, who was not included in uh, the idea and the goal of achieving pure and simple food security on a sustainable basis? So I was kind of inspired by that book, as were tens of thousands of other people at the time, and began to formulate my own approach to community-based economic development. And I, I, I certainly believe that it was possible for communities to um, provide for their food uh, in ways that they weren't. And, uh, and so when I was living in Massachusetts, for example, uh, and there were other projects that predated that, but just as an example, I, I, I did a little research and I came to find, come to, I came to find out that uh, Massachusetts at one time was 
producing 90% of its food. Uh, and, uh, and, and currently, Massachusetts is dependent upon external food sources. So the, the question then is, uh, why, why couldn't Massachusetts grow food for itself once again? You know, and, uh, and, and the farm, and if I look at Western Massachusetts, for example, just being about 125 miles north of New York City and 125 miles west of Boston, there were a lot of second homeowners uh, that uh, wanted to enjoy the bucolic uh, ambiance of uh, Western Massachusetts and the foothills. And, and it's a cultural mecca during the summer. The Boston Symphony, for example, has their summer home at Tanglewood. And uh, there's, you know, dance at Jacob's Pillow and, and uh, other examples of why people enjoy the culture. It used to actually be, uh, at the turn of the 20th century, the, uh, the, the, the Vanderbilts and, the, you know, and others had their summer cottages and these little cottages were often 40 plus rooms uh, and, and villas, you know, classical villas up on a hillside. Anyway, to get to the bottom line here, uh, this core group, we decided to explore the possibility of, of using the principles of capitalism, uh, you know, uh, that is selling shares of stock uh, to potential investors, but in this particular variation on the theme, it was selling shares of food uh, to the local community. And uh, so it became quite successful. We started out feeding 15 families and then eventually we went to 300 families. And uh, then we reached the sustainable limit of the, the farm we were on. Uh, but we had a local grower. We got to know our grower, uh, just like we got to know our dentist or our, you know, lawyer if you ever needed one. I mean, the, the, there was this community spirit of being able to identify with who's growing your food. You can visit the farm so you know under what conditions that food is being grown. You get to experience the community of uh, other sharers who come to the farm and pick up their produce uh, uh, twice a week, uh, even in the winter when they pick up their root crops. And so it was a, a decentralist notion of local food security and and that eventually led to and i didn't have a lot of direct input into this but uh certainly uh we looked at you know the local community producing its own uh currency and you may recall that uh you know berkshires uh, were an outcome of uh the next step of, of producing food and so these actual notes uh called berkshires uh printed right on the on the, uh, on the on the note uh, is uh, ecology, community, economy, and sustainability. And so the idea was that uh, you could go to your local bank and get a hundred Berkshires for uh, uh, ninety-five U.S. dollars. So in effect, you're you're getting a five percent bump in your purchasing power, and uh, they're millions of dollars now in circulation in Berkshires in uh, southern uh, Berkshire County. And in effect, these uh, are used uh, to buy things. So you can stay in hotels, you can stay at the Red Lion Inn, you can stay at, uh, you can buy food at the local deli, at the local coffee shop, at the local sushi restaurant, and, and so forth. And uh, and every time, uh, and, and I find that uh, the, the New Yorkers and the Bostonians who come really insist upon wanting to use these these Berkshires because not only are they getting a five percent discount on everything, but you know they they like uh, promoting these notions of economy.
ecology and community and economy and sustainability. And, uh, and so everyone's buying into this uh, alternative to this industrial globalized food delivery system uh, in, a, in a positive way and saying, I'm doing my part for climate change. I'm doing my part for sustainability. I'm doing my part for keeping the Walmarts and these other huge, uh, you know, targets and so forth uh, out of our community, which Great Barrington did. When Walmart said we want to build a Walmart here, they said thanks, but no th thanks. We like our Main Street. We like our small, uh, you know, suppliers, and we're going to help them out to stay in business by using a, a local currency or using, a, uh, you know, just the the, the imperatives of, of uh, sustainability and promoting and reinforcing those imperatives of sustainability. So, yeah, it, it, in some ways, the the, the community-supported agriculture project at CSA that we started in Western Massachusetts and the Freedom Gardens in Malawi. Here's a northern variation and a southern variation, but they're both concerned about the, exactly the same things and approach it a little bit differently. But nevertheless, uh, you know, this notion of ecology and community and economy and sustainability are just driving both of these projects uh, in the industrial north as well as the developing south. Um, so yeah, that, that's sort of a, a longer answer probably than you were looking for. But uh, in terms of strategic planning, in terms of you know any business has to have a strategic plan. You know where are we? Where do we want to go? And how are we going to get there? You know, and whether it was building a school in Malawi or starting a, a local community-supported agriculture project in, in, in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, uh, and now they're literally I, I don't know the the latest count, but at last count, there was something like 3,000 of these CSAs in the United States alone, if not more. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess that's what motivated me to be able to analyze large-scale macroeconomic indicators of macroeconomics, which was my background in terms of institutional economics, international trade, and so forth, but then to analyze what the implications of that um, bigger is better mentality was for the sustainability and, and the impact on climate change. And then not enough to criticize, but then to look at how can we develop real alternatives uh, where people can enjoy some wealth, can enjoy, uh, you know, uh, a higher quality of life, achieve food security, eating wholesome food, you know, you are what you eat kind of idea. And uh, so it has health implications. And, uh, you know, Malawi has a long way to go. I, I don't want to say this is, you know, a, 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 as does the United States for that matter, you know. So, um, yeah, but I think these little small steps, you know, uh, are the, those first steps for the thousand mile journey, as uh, I think it was Lao Tzu that said, uh, you know, we, we got to take these steps and we have to look at how we can develop alternative, alternative energy, alternative food production, uh, and, and analyze the impact of what we're doing on forests, on fisheries, on, on, on soil degradation, and uh, yeah. yeah, climate change generally stated. Yeah, no, I mean, I just think it's really cool how you've been able to <clears throat> integrate research into the real world but also still align with things that you're actually passionate about and not you know just ticking the boxes like that's really fun now kind of looking forward like you mentioned you're going to be teaching one class here at franklin yeah uh, and of course for that you will be deeply missed i'm sure many people have told you this time and time again um but i think kind of 
the question on everyone's mind is, you know, what's next for you? Obviously, you've been traveling around. I mean, basically a large portion, if not your entire family lives in Switzerland. So that's amazing. And, you know, what what is next for you? Do you are you going to stay in Switzerland and for indefinite or are you planning on traveling, moving somewhere else? What's next? What's next? Good question. Uh, I don't know what's next. <laughs> I've always gone with uh, my intuitive sense of what makes sense. Uh, you know, for, for me and my wife, our family, uh, I do know that, uh, you know, as you get a little bit older and uh, you, you start looking at alternatives to what you've been doing. And uh, so, number one, teaching and uh, the academic world and research and uh, reading and, and so forth are, have been lifelong passions. I, I, I couldn't think of anything else I would rather have done at any time in my life. And I tried the corporate sector for a while and I, you know, uh, I was actually myself in the military for a while, and I thought I would follow, at one point in my life, I thought I would follow in my father's footsteps, but I said, no, I, I've had enough of military life. Uh, you know, as you said in your introduction, eight grammar schools, four high schools, three universities, and so forth. It, it, it gets a little uh, tiring after a while. So what's next? I hope, uh, it's my hope, that I will be able uh, to continue to teach one course at Franklin um, for the foreseeable future as long as I can do it and as long as Franklin wants me. Uh, and I think I've been reasonably successful in terms of what I've been doing, so I, I hope to continue that uh, one piece, you know, rather than teach uh, three courses a semester, I, I like teaching the one course. I focus a lot on that one course. I prepare a lot for that one course, and I, I get to know the students. And I still have, you know, anywhere, you know, I would say ballpark around 20 students. Uh, and if I were to run an Africa trip, I think I could easily run it higher than that. So um, I, I think it's a draw for Franklin, and uh, I, I think it's a win-win situation. Win-win for me, win-win for Franklin. So I, I hope to stick around. In the rest of my time, uh, and my wife will be retiring uh, in the next year or two. And um, so we love to travel. And uh, we bought a, a VW California four-wheel four drive. So I, I hope to rig it so we can uh, move beyond uh, the uh, asphalt of northern uh uh, of Europe and, and just explore, you know, and, and also look at other places uh, where uh, I've been wanting to travel um, over the years. I'd love to explore Eastern Europe a little bit better. Uh, and, uh, anyway, and also we're expecting, we are expecting our sixth grandchild. <laughs> so as we say in Italian, nonno has a lot of uh, obligations to the grandchildren. Uh, so I, I love uh, taking them on walks and taking them down to the lake and um, just doing things with them. And, uh, and so three of my four sons uh, live here just literally up the road. And uh, in the, uh, we get walk to their uh, where they live. Uh, my my oldest son uh, lives in New Jersey. In fact, we're leaving if all goes well for New Jersey in the middle of July. Uh, so it's been a while since we visited our first grandson. So uh, clearly, the grandchildren are playing a role in the mix <laughs> of what's next in terms of uh, traveling with them, which I would like to do when they get a little bit older. Uh, my dream is to take uh, the older uh, grandsons. Uh, 
you know, uh, to, to Southern Africa. And uh, I know a few places to take them in Botswana at this point, and <laughs> South Africa and uh, Namibia and Malawi, of course. So uh, I, I think uh, at, at this stage, the oldest is uh, six. And uh, so uh, I would like to wait till they're at least maybe eight so they can remember uh, things a little bit better. Uh, as I reflect back on my own memory, uh, you know, I, everything seemed to kick in in terms of my memory uh, when I was uh, starting school, you know, first grade, second grade, third grade, that kind of thing. Anyway, so they're part of the mix. My wife and I, as I said, want to travel a little bit more, uh, particularly when she gets freed up from her teaching at uh, the American School up the road here, uh, Tassus. And, um, but yeah, I also, you know, want to keep the intellectual gears moving and I, uh, I've been teaching environmental politics, the politics of sustainable agriculture um, in the north as well as the south. Uh, but there are new courses I'd like to play with, uh, like uh, political psychology, uh, uh, leadership, political behavior, uh, and looking more at the psycho psychological aspects of social movement theory, uh, particularly with respect to climate change and the institutional changes required to address the issues of climate change. And uh, so I, I feel that uh, th there's room for developing some, some of these new courses in uh, environmental leadership, sustainable leadership, uh, and uh, social movement theory with respect to particularly political psychology, political behavior, all the links to sustainability. So uh, yeah, that, that's sort of on the horizon. And, and uh, I guess right at the top of the list is to stay healthy, you know, <laughs> and to stay fit. And, uh, you know, my wife's like a boot camp leader, you know, she, uh, in a good way. She's always got me on a bicycle or taking these long hikes or, uh, you know, so uh, she's always been very athletic. And, um, and so it's hard keeping up with her at this point. She's 10 years younger than I am, but uh, nevertheless, uh, we seem to do fine together uh, on that front. So, um, yeah. I'm excited to see you develop these new courses, but also hopefully go on a lot of adventure as COVID kind of clears up and allows you to do so. So yeah, um, yeah. I wish you the best of luck. And I wanted to thank you so much for sharing part of your story here today on the podcast. Um, it's been a pleasure and really best of luck and very excited for your new grandson or you know, <laughs> Grand, granddaughter yeah uh we, we have one granddaughter so we have another granddaughter coming and uh, and then four grandsons after having had four sons so uh you know that seems to be in the, in the stars so to speak in terms yeah. of uh, <laughs> Well, but it's been a yeah, it's been a pleasure, Margaret. Thank you for taking the time to to hear my stories, and uh, I look forward to uh, maintaining uh, my association with Franklin. Yes, uh, of course. All right, bye bye. Take care. Bye bye. Take care.